Back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God, the Messiah of God. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the, by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus said that in Luke chapter 9. Now, at this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and Jesus has been killed. So where do you think, the, where would you expect the disciples to be on the third day? At the tomb, fasting, praying, trusting the word of their master, waiting on a miracle, waiting on the rebirth of the entire world. But of course, that's not where we find them. You see, the idea of resurrection was no less strange in the first century than it would be in the 21st century. Many of the Jews believed in a final large-scale resurrection of all those who died in faithfulness to the covenant, but no one had the framework. No one had the framework to believe that a single man might rise from the dead. And so it's not as though the early disciples were just gullible and superstitious, which gave rise to this far-fetched Christian doctrine of the resurrection. No. Jesus, Jesus had told them explicitly that he would die and rise on the third day. But despite all of his miracles, including raising the dead, by the way, they still did not believe him. Obviously, Jesus was speaking figuratively, right? Because everybody knows that dead people stay dead, right? Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. That's the Sanhedrin. A good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. So Joseph of Arimathea was a high-ranking Jewish official, He was a member of the Jewish Supreme Court. And Joseph opposed the decision to crucify Jesus. The Gospel of John reveals to us that he was actually a secret disciple of Jesus. And so he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So Joseph of Arimathea was accompanied by several women, several female disciples of Jesus. The Gospels of Matthew and Mark each mention two women, both named Mary. And the Gospel of Luke adds the name Joanna to the list. But all four Gospels, all four Gospels go out of their way to tell us that the body of Jesus is cared for and wrapped in cloth and laid to rest by a man named Joseph and at least one Mary. Joseph and Mary. That sounds familiar, right? Bear that in mind as we go along. Chapter 24, verse 1. 
The women prepare spices and ointments and they observe the Sabbath on Saturday. But on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Now, remember, these women are not going to the tomb because they expect Jesus to be alive. They're simply going to the tomb because they weren't able to finish the burial process on account of the Sabbath. As a side note, notice that Jesus had clearly taught his disciples to observe a weekly day of rest. Not even the death of their master could get in the way of that. Okay, verse 2. The women arrived at the tomb, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men, these are angels, stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you. While he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. Now, throughout the Gospel of Luke, women play a relatively prominent role. But they are never more prominent than here in the, in the last couple chapters as witnesses to the crucifixion and to the resurrection of Jesus. When times got tough and when days got dark, it was the women who emerged as the ideal exemplary disciples. We're not told what the men were doing, but we are told what the women were doing. And we have a lot to learn from their example. We are told that these female disciples had followed Jesus all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, to the cross, and to the tomb. And as the men were scattering and denying their ties to Jesus, the women were faithfully following. Even when Jesus was a corpse, the women persisted in their loving devotion to him. And so in that sense, these women stand as exemplars of the faith. Even when their faith faltered, even when they were stuck in their grief, even when they had no idea what the future would hold, even when all hope seemed lost, they continued loving and following Jesus. And of course, they are honored for this steadfast devotion. They are the very first recipients of the greatest news in the history of the world. But look at verse 8. It says, and they, that is the women, remembered his words. I don't want to miss the importance of that. The faith of these women was not rooted in a sentimental gullibility. The faith, their, their faith was rooted in the word of Christ. In the word of Christ. And the resurrection narrative actually hinges upon this. If the women do not remember the words of Jesus, they are not going to conclude that he has risen. They will naturally conclude that his body has been taken and they will return to the apostles with a false report. And so the narrative hinges on them remembering the words of Jesus. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. But... Verse 11, these words seemed to the men an idle tale, and they did not believe them. 
And so the women come back and they, and they tell the men about this empty tomb and they tell them about the two angels and they remind them about Luke chapter nine. They remind them that Jesus had told them to expect this. And the men still don't believe it. They still don't believe it. Now, if this were a made up story, if Luke were concocting these events, he certainly would not have included these embarrassing details. He would not have based these events upon the testimony of women who were not regarded as credible witnesses in the ancient world. But neither would he depict the faithlessness and skepticism of the disciples. These 11 men were the men upon whom the church was founded. This is not a flattering narrative for them. This is not a good look. And so we have good reason to conclude that this is what really happened. On the other hand, if you look upon the resurrection of Jesus with skepticism, you are in very good company. You're not the first person to doubt these events. The Christian gospel is good news in part because it tells us things we didn't know to expect. Things we aren't naturally inclined to believe. Things we don't fully understand. But if it's the truth of God, I think we should maybe expect to be surprised. And so again, the men respond with skepticism, but with one exception. Verse 12, Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, the point is not to bash on the men and pander to the women. That's not what Luke is doing, and that's certainly not what I'm trying to do. I simply think that the gospel of Luke demonstrates for us, and for the male-dominated first-century world, the unique role that femininity has to play within the kingdom of God. The kingdom depends upon distinctly feminine forms of faithfulness, just as much as it depends upon distinctly masculine forms of faithfulness. But here we see that the loving and nurturing faith of these women keeps on going when the devotion of the men fails. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that as a, as a network of relationships, the church fellowship is largely held together by women. Again, I think this is demonstrated for us in the Gospel of Luke because it's almost always the women who are depicted tending to the body of Christ. Whether swaddling his newborn body or pouring perfume upon his adult body or burying his dead body, it's almost always the women who are depicted tending to the body of Christ. And listen, There is no higher calling. Now, I want to review the verses we've covered today, and I want to do so in light of what we pointed out earlier, that all four Gospels, all four Gospels go out of their way to tell us that the body of Jesus is cared for and wrapped in cloth and laid to rest by a man named Joseph and at least one Mary. Because there are several more details within the final chapters of Luke that draw our minds back to the opening chapters of Luke, back to the story of Jesus' birth. In both cases, we see Joseph's and Mary's caring for Jesus when he is unable to care for himself. In both cases, we see them wrapping him in cloth, 
They swaddle him after his birth and they wrap him for burial after his death. In both cases, Jesus is sheltered within a vessel that has never been used. He is sheltered within the virgin womb of Mary and he is sheltered within the virgin tomb of Joseph. In both cases, people bring spices and ointments to him. The women bring spices and ointments following his death, just as the magi bring frankincense and myrrh following his birth. In both cases, we see angels announcing the good news. And in both cases, we see shepherds running to see him and marveling as they return home. In the case of chapter 24, the shepherd, of course, is Peter. So what's, what's the meaning of all this? Well, first, let me assure you that this is not an accident. Luke has done this intentionally. And second, this is more than just an interesting connection. This is highly suggestive. Luke is making a point here. In referring us back to the birth narrative, Luke is telling us that the resurrection of Jesus is a new birth. Just as Jesus emerged from the virgin womb, he emerges from the virgin tomb as the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. You see, Jesus was born in order to conquer death. From the moment he was born, his mission was to accomplish our redemption by defeating our greatest enemy. And so from the cradle to the grave, everything Jesus did was aimed at bringing new life to a world of death. And by his new birth, he makes new birth possible for all. With the resurrection of Jesus, the entire world has, in a sense, been born again. At some point between that first Holy Saturday and that first Easter Sunday, everything changed. Nothing is the same anymore, and it's all for the better. As we sing during the Christmas season, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And so the call today is to respond to this news like the women in Luke 24. They remembered his words. They remembered his words. They did not understand Jesus' words in light of his resurrection. They understood his resurrection in light of his words. In the same way, we cannot make sense of our lives by reading the word of God through the lens of our circumstances. We make sense of our lives by reading our circumstances through the lens of God's word. The word of God interprets life for us. But if we allow our circumstances or even the culture around us to dictate what we think about the word of God, we risk emptying the word of that power. We risk cutting off hope at the source. I know you probably already feel this, but our society is, we desperately need hope. We desperately need hope because we are living through a disoriented and anxious age of widespread hopelessness. 
We need hope. But we don't need unsubstantiated hope. We need real hope, rooted in real truth, rooted in real events. And to know the real truth, rooted in real events, we have to begin where the women began, by remembering his words. Only the word of Christ, only the word of God, has the power to give us hope in the midst of hopeless situations. Just, just imagine the shift that must have taken place when these women at the tomb finally understood what God was really doing. They went from grief to joy in an instant because they remembered his words. It all hinged on remembering his words. It all hinged upon them allowing his words to interpret their circumstances. His words are real truth. His words are living and active and beautiful. His words have the power to impart wisdom, to give you joy, to restore you to life. So remember his words, trust his words. When days are dark, especially when days are dark, keep on following Jesus. Remember his words. Those who follow him all the way to the cross will be the first to know the joy of his resurrection. He will give you life according to his word. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you created us. You created us. Created everything. And so the resurrection of our bodies will ultimately be child's play for you. We, we entrust ourselves to you, body and soul, on this resurrection Sunday. Jesus, you are the firstborn from the dead. And we want to follow you into the new world you are making the new world you are creating. And so thank you for your wise and loving and life-giving words to us. Holy Spirit, give us faith like the women in Luke 23 and 24. Faith to follow Jesus all the way, all the way to the cross, all the way to the tomb, and all the way into this new world he is making. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.